I invite you to take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John, chapter 15. You know that I began a series within a series, so to speak. I've been walking through these words in John 15, which are really part of our Lord's farewell discourse, if you will. They are some of the last words He spoke to His disciples during His earthly ministry. They are very dear words, very important words. They are words about the most important subject that we could think of, and that is the nature of genuine salvation. So this is not an obscure topical series, but it really is a, a mini-series that is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And we've not been preaching through this in consecutive weeks, but as um, we have finished chapters in our larger series in 1 Corinthians, and as the Lord in His providence has just given us uh, breaks and, and seen fit in the schedule to, to make ready for one of these messages, we have looked together to this chapter. And this morning I'm going to preach the penultimate sermon from this series. That's just a fancy way of saying the one before the last so there's your vocabulary word for the day, but it sounds great. Um, I, I was at lunch yesterday in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, on the way home from a, a conference, and a brother asked me, what are you preaching in the morning? And I said, well, I've been doing a, a series in John 15 uh, as I take breaks from my series in 1 Corinthians, and I've, I've got two more to go, and I'm going to preach the second to last one tomorrow. He says, ah, the penultimate sermon. And I said, well, that when you put it like that, it sounds exciting. So yes. <laughs> I'm going to preach the penultimate sermon from this series. So um, we'll look together this morning at verses 12 through 17. You'll remember that the theme of this little mini-series has been abiding in Christ. And so we've talked about abiding in the true vine in verses 1 through 3. And then we talked about abiding in the living vine in verses 4 through 8. And then most recently we looked at abiding in the love of Christ in verses 9 through 11. And this morning we're going to look at abiding in the command of Christ. I think you'll see why I've titled it that way because in our very first verse, in verse 12, he will, he will begin by saying, this is my commandment. So we'll look at what it means to abide in the command of Christ. Let me read our text to you this morning. John 15, beginning at verse 12, these are the words of God. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of my Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you that ye love one another. This text is bookended by two commands. They're really the same command stated two times. In verse 12, Jesus begins by saying, this is my command. In verse 17, he concludes by saying, this is what I've commanded you to do. So I think it's very fitting for us to see this imperative of loving one another as Christ has loved us not just as a suggestion or as a circumstance, but as something that we are commanded to do. Well, this tells us a little something about what love is, doesn't it? Well, so much for this idea that love is just this fickle emotion that is totally divorced from the will, and we just can't help what we love. And uh, love just comes upon us, kind of like a Cupid in the sky, and he comes out of the clouds and pulls back his arrow and let, lets her rip and hits us in the backside and then we love. 
That's how the world oftentimes thinks of love. However, if that's all love is, we couldn't be commanded to love. I command you to love. You know, a lot of times uh, parents, you know, they, they, they will command their children to eat their food, but you know what they can't do is command their children to be hungry. But Jesus doesn't just command us to act a certain way or treat each other a certain way. He commands us to have a disposition towards one another, to have a, an emotion towards one another, to have a, a feeling towards one another. Because there's also a ditch on the other side. There's this other ditch, and I, I think it's a reaction, an overreaction to the idea that love is just a, a fickle emotion. There's this other overreaction that says love is strictly an act of the will. It's just a choice, and it's just a, a specific behavior. And so it doesn't really matter the, the attitude or the disposition of your heart towards someone as long as you're treating them a certain way, you're loving them. Well, that's not at all the way we see love displayed for us in the Bible. So this is not the, the sermon in which we're going to delve into the relationship between our emotions and our will and uh, how, how our thoughts affect our actions and our desires affect our thoughts and so on and so forth. But I just want you to see that love is an act of the will and it's also an emotion. Jesus has already told us a little bit about what his love looks like, the love that we are to abide in. You'll remember I, I told you that in verses 9 through 11 that the love that Christ has for us, that, that, that we are to continue in, that we are to abide in, is a love that's first and foremost exemplified in the Trinity. Where do we see the love of God first and foremost? Well, not in the way that it has come to us, but in the way that it was in eternity between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and the love that he now has for us is an overflow of that divine eternal love. And I, I made the statement to you that we, we must thank God and we must rejoice that the Father loved the Son and the Son loved the Father because if the Father didn't love the Son and the Son didn't love the Father, neither one of them would have ever loved us. I'm glad that, that God loves himself. I, I don't believe in any form of social Trinitarianism, meaning that, uh, that, that, that the Trinity is, is on equal footing with the, the nuclear human family, but I do think it's an accurate teaching to say that in the same way, a husband and a wife must love one another first before they can properly love their children. And if you, you as a child, see a loving relationship between your father and your mother you have something to rest secure in. Hey, I, I know no matter what goes on in my household, mommy loves daddy, daddy loves mommy, and, and that will be a relationship that will hold our family together. Well, in the same way, no matter what happens in the Christian life, no matter what trial, no matter what difficulty, the father loves the son, the son loves the father, the father has given the son a love gift, the son, because of his love, has agreed to purchase that love gift, and it doesn't matter how we feel about it, it, it is certain and it is sure. And because the Father has loved the Son, and because the Son has loved the Father, we can know that they have loved us. Of course, that Trinitarian love includes the Spirit as well, who, who has a love for the Father and the Son, and the Son and the Father for Him. But then we saw that, that this love is experienced through obedience. What do we mean by that, experience through obedience? Kind of sounds a little counterintuitive to this whole message of free grace, right? Well, not exactly, because when we talk about experiencing the love of God, we're talking about feeling it experientially in our lives. I, I, I could get up and, uh, and give you a, a great lecture on the doctrine of divine love and explain to you how it works theoretically, uh, but you could at the end of that lecture say, well, that's great. I now have some factual information, but how does that help me? I want to feel this doctrine. I want to feel this truth. Uh, so how do you experience the love of God? Well, Jesus tells us we experience the love of God as we serve Him and keep His commandments and follow after Him. 
as we yield to him in, in prayer, in obedience, in worship, that's how we practically feel the love of God. It's not that our obedience makes God love us anymore, and it's not that our disobedience makes us love God any less. Not at all. What we're talking about is the distinction between what we know to be true. What we know to be true is the eternal, immutable, unchangeable love of God that doesn't increase and doesn't decrease. But there's a distinction between what we know to be true and what we feel in our lives presently. Look, I know my wife loves me, and she knows, I I hope and pray, she knows that I love her. But there are times in our marriage where we might not necessarily feel that love as strongly as other times. So it is in your relationship with God. So how do you feel that love? By serving Him and pursuing Him and following after Him. But then we also find that the the divine love is a love that elicits joy. Elicits joy. What, What brings you joy as a creature? To know that the God who created you loves you. It brings a joy in your life. And so we see in verses 9 through 11 that the, the love of Christ, the divine love, is really at the epicenter of Christianity. And so now what Jesus is commanding in verses 12 through 17 is to take what we know about the divine love for the members of the Trinity and as it relates to us and now take what comes downward to us and put it outward to others. This is, if you will, putting, a, putting shoe leather on the doctrine of divine love, making it very practical in our relationships one towards another. So we're going to now look at a description of divine love through the angle of how we are to love one another. And so I have another set of, of points here to articulate the love of God, but not just the way God loves us, but the way we are to also love one another. And I hope you're really stopping to consider the, the magnitude of this subject matter. I, I really believe that what we're talking about is, is so key and essential to living the Christian life. If you grasp this idea that, that, that the love of God is at the center of everything we do and that it is a love experienced through obedience, but that it is an obedience that produces joy, it will change the way you live the Christian life. To, to have a, a Christian life that is fueled and motivated, not by legalism, not by terror, not by, well, I've got to do this and I've got to do this and I've got to do this so that I can earn God's love and, and merit His favor, but by a motivation of, no, God's love is a, is a reality that I want to bathe in. I want, you know, you, 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 don't, you don't have to go with a, a little water hose and fill up the Pacific before you can take a vacation to the beach. No, the ocean is there. You know it's there. You know it's there right now. Uh, but, but you want to go there, not so that you can merit the ocean or cause the ocean, but so you can just go and bask in the ocean and bathe in the ocean and swim in it. So it is with the love of God. It's there. It's there. You don't cause it or create it. Our goal as Christians is just to glory in it, to enjoy it. So what is this love? Well, number one, I want you to see that it's a sacrificial love. Verses 12 and 13, it's a sacrificial love. Jesus says, this is my commandment. And again, I repeat, obedience and love are friends, not enemies. Obedience and love are friends, not enemies. There's no contradiction. There's no animosity between the two. You don't have to choose between preaching a sermon on obedience and a sermon on love. No, they go together. What is the commandment? Verse 12. That ye love one another as I have loved you. In John 13, Jesus gave this commandment. And John 13 is in the same section of the Gospel of John as John 15. It's what they call the upper room discourse or the the farewell messages of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not new information. But in John 13, it was new information, and he said it was new information. John 13, in verse 34, Jesus referred to this as a new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another 
as I have loved you, even as I have loved you. Well, that makes us scratch our heads a little bit. What do you mean this is a new commandment? I mean, Jesus, haven't you read Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 9 that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself? What's new about this commandment? Well, what makes this command new is not the imperative to love one another. That's not a new commandment. What makes this commandment new is that we are to love one another as Christ himself has loved us. The world had never before seen such a demonstration of love before the Son of God came to earth and gave himself as a ransom for undeserving sinners. There is no greater picture of love in all of the world. There will never be a greater picture of love in all of the world than the God-man, Jesus Christ, in his life and in his death. It wasn't the nails in his hands and his feet that held him to the Roman cross. He was held to the cross by a tenacious love that was bound to accomplish the redemption of the Father's love gift. That is what compelled him to march to Golgotha's hill. That is what strengthened him to carry his cross. That is what kept him alive until he had accomplished salvation. It was love. It was sacrificial love. There is no greater picture of sacrificial love than the love that we see displayed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian love is at the center of the biblical gospel, so much so that love is the trait that identifies Christians to the world as disciples of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say? By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. By what? You're looking at me because you've heard me say this so many times from this pulpit. What is the mark by which the world will know that we belong to Jesus? By our quickness to respond to theological controversy. By the way we dress. By the music we listen to. By... Fill in the blank. No, brothers and sisters, the world will know that we are his disciples by the love we have for one another. And I pray that that is what the world sees when they look at me. And I confess that it's not always what the world sees when it looks at me. And I have given the world many occasions to blaspheme and to reproach, and to look at me and to say, how could he be a Christian? Being so divisive and argumentative and quick-tempered and ruthless. And I pray that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would help me, would sanctify me, would put to death in me all things contrary to a picture of Christian love. I pray that that's what the world would say if they were to venture into our church on a Sunday morning or venture into a a fellowship at one of our homes. I pray they would say something like, I don't understand all the things they believe. I I don't get Christian worship. I, I don't know why you would waste a perfectly good Sunday morning to to get up and get dressed and Drive to church to have some guy yell at you for 55 minutes. I don't understand that, but here's what I know. Those people love one another. I mean, they, they love one another. They have a, a passion for the good of their neighbor. What a testimony. If by God's grace, that could be true of us. And if that is true of us, mark it down. It's not because of us, but it's because of him who works in us. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if you have love one for another. This same conviction was shared by the apostles. We've been in 1 Corinthians now for 
and it's, it's getting to be an embarrassingly long time. But Lord willing, we'll, we'll very soon begin chapter 13 as we finish chapter 12. And we will hear what the Apostle Paul has to say about a Christianity without love. Do you know what he says about a Christianity without love? He says it's worthless. It doesn't matter how wonderful your doctrine is if you don't have love. It doesn't matter how pristine your theology is if you don't have love. It doesn't matter how regulated your worship service is if you don't have love. It's it's kind of like what Isaac said to Abraham. You know, we say, here we are, Lord. Here's our scripture reading, and here's our psalm singing, and here's our prayers, and here's our fermented wine and the Lord's Supper, and uh, all of these doctrinal points that we would say, we do church the right way, and, and, and God says, if you don't have love, it's worthless. It's like Isaac saying to Abraham, here's the wood, here's the fire, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? If we have all of the form and the semblance of Christianity with no love, then we don't have Christ himself. Because he is love. Your religion and your theology and your doctrinal convictions are absolutely worthless if they do not produce within you a genuine love for others. Listen to J.C. Ryle and his expository thoughts on the gospel. He that supposes he is right in the sight of God because his doctrinal views are correct, while he is unloving in his temper, and sharp, cross, snappish, and ill-natured in the use of his tongue, exhibits wretched ignorance of the first principles of Christ's gospel. The crossness, spitefulness, jealousy, maliciousness, and general disagreeableness of many high professors of sound doctrine, that's his quotes, sound doctrine, are a positive scandal to Christianity. Where there is little love, there can be little grace. It is a scandal. Oh, it is a scandal. When we behave just as the world behaves, when we backbite against one another and speak poorly of one another and turn our backs on one another and doesn't matter. In fact, it makes it worse that we have all of this doctrine and all of this theology. I'm convinced that this is what's killing many, many sound churches. Especially those, if I can be so blunt, especially those in a theological tradition like ours where there is a high premium placed on sound doctrine. We oftentimes treat love as something we give to others as a reward for their agreement with us. Well, I love brother so-and-so because he agrees with me about everything. I mean, he's a good brother. He, he amens me the loudest when I preach and he hoops and hollers and he gets excited about the same theological controversies I get excited about. And we have the same interests and the same culture and the same background I'm going to reward him with my love. You see the problem with that? I'm glad Jesus doesn't love me that way. His love for me was not based on my performance. His love for me was not based on what I had to offer him. If he was sitting around examining my life, looking for a reason to love me, he would have never loved me. His love for me is a sacrificial love. He loves me at his own expense. It cost me nothing for him to love me. It cost him everything for him to love me. Truly sacrificial, selfless love is the greatest love. Jesus says in verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this. We oftentimes... I think it's because in our casual speech, and I include myself in this, I do it all the time, we speak in superlatives all the time. Well, this is the best ever. This is the best meal I've ever eaten. This is the best song I've ever heard. This is the greatest this and the greatest that, and we we cheapen the value of those words. 
But, but Jesus does not speak flippantly. When Jesus says that something is the greatest, it really is the greatest. So you say, what's the greatest kind of love? Jesus says in verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Christ is the ultimate example of sacrificial love because Jesus' love for me compelled him to give everything. He kept nothing back. He he gave himself and he marched all the way to Calvary and he loved me to the point of death. When loving me became hardest, he loved me more. Did you hear that? It wasn't, well, I'll love you until it becomes difficult for me to love you and then I don't know. Then I, I might have to rethink my decision to love you. But I, I'm convinced, though divine love uh, does not grow and does not diminish, human love does. A- and Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, was God of very God, but he was also man of very man. And the Bible says in Luke 2 that Jesus grew in wisdom, and he grew in stature, and he grew in wisdom, and he grew in favor. And, and brothers and sisters, I believe that he grew in love. As a man, he grew in love and he loved me and he loved you more as he hung on the cross than he ever did. Amen. He had to have. What else would compel him to go? To suffer. Jesus didn't stop on the road to Calvary and say, wait a minute, I can't love him. He doesn't agree with me on everything. Wait a minute, I can't love him because I, I, can't let, I can't let heaven see me loving such a wretched person. That'll mar my reputation if, if someone sees me loving them. That got Jesus in a whole lot of trouble, didn't it, in his earthly ministry? What's up with this guy eating with tax collectors and sinners? He didn't stop and say, wait a minute, I can't love him because if I love him... I'll have to go to the cross and die. And that's uncomfortable. No, he beheld me. And he beheld you as a worthless, hell-bound, undeserving sinner. And he said to you, you are the one whom I love. You are the one for whom I will die. I will pour out my love upon you. And my love will transform you. And you will love me because I loved you first. Christ's love for us cost him everything. And I just ask you, what does your love for others cost you? I don't want to, again, I don't want to take a message of grace and turn it into legalism. But let me just, let me just put before you a, a, maybe a, a probing situation or two. Can you think of a time in your life where You had to make a choice between doing something that would have gained you favor in the world or maybe some worldly advantage and loving your brothers and sisters. And you had to make the choice and you had to say, no, I love my brothers and sisters. Therefore, I must do this and not that. Has your love ever cost you anything? Have you ever been in a situation where you've had to swallow your pride and you've had to put away your desire to be right because love was a higher calling. Certainly Jesus, he never had to lay aside truth for the sake of love and I don't believe he's calling us to do that either. But he laid aside his his life. He, He laid aside all of the advantages that this world had to offer. He he had no place to lay his head. He had a bad reputation with the religious elite. Why? Because he chose to love his people. And his people were people like you and me, sinners, the out-and-out tax collectors, prostitutes, publicans, Those were the people that he loved. And it cost him everything. 
was a sacrificial love. Secondly, I want you to see in verses 14 and 15 that it was a special love. It's a special love. What do I mean by that? It's a specific love. It's an intimate love. It is a love that has a, a very real, tangible knowledge of its object. A lot of times, we will describe someone as being a loving person. And what we mean by that is they're just, they're just very affectionate. They're very sweet. And that's, that's not a bad thing, by the way, to, to be known as a loving person. But this love is more than that. It's not just that Jesus was kind and had a, had a natural loving disposition. His love was a special love. Notice in verse 14, he says, Ye are my friends. You're my friends. Greater love hath no, no man than this than to lay down his life for my friends. Then he says, You are my friends. What's he saying there? He's saying there that my love is propelling me to lay down my life for you. You are my friends. Do you realize what had to happen for Jesus to be able to say this? The Bible says naturally that you and I were born as the arch enemies of God. Original sin caused us to hate God and the things of God and to want nothing to do with Him. Our relationship with Him consisted of nothing but hostility and wrath. How can Jesus say, You are my friends? Because he died that he might take away that wrath and put an end to that hostility. His death removed our sin that alienated us from God and in its place he gave us his own righteousness. In Christ, the war between holy God and sinful man comes to an end. And according to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20, Christ has brought about peace through the blood of his cross. We are no longer the enemies of Christ. We are His friends. And he continues on in verse 15. He says, Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Now, what, what do we make of this language here? I call you not servants but I call you friends. Well, some have misused this verse in attempts to disprove that biblical salvation includes receiving Jesus as both Savior and Lord. They will say, see here, Jesus is, is, is uh, no longer our, our law-giving Lord. He's just our loving, sacrificial Savior. Now, they will argue that when Jesus saves us, he, he doesn't relate to us as a sovereign, but just as a friend. But this is based on a false assumption that those two concepts are inherently incompatible. I told you before that obedience and love are not, friend, are not enemies, but friends. And the same principle is true. The lordship of Christ and the friendship of Christ are beautifully compatible with one another. All throughout the New Testament, God's men refer to themselves as the slaves of Christ while they also simultaneously speak tenderly and affectionately of their loving communion with Christ. So it's not an either-or. It's not, well, we can be His slaves and His servants, or we can be His loving friends. To, to understand what Jesus is saying here in verse 15, you need to understand the structure of a first-century kingdom. Think of, uh, for instance, even before the first century, think of the kingdom of Solomon. Kings had many, many wives, and their marriages were mostly political. There was no love there between the king and his wife. The king had many concubines to satisfy his physical pleasures. And because of his position in power, it was very difficult for the king to make friends. If he was to befriend uh, someone else, in the spectrum of royalty, he always had to be watching his back for that person to look for any opportunity to take over and usurp his authority, right? So who became the king's closest friends? Well, the king's closest friends became his servants. 
They were with him all the time. They posed no threat to him. They were not ever in a position where they could take over his throne and his dominion. His servants were with him. They, they were allowed into his living quarters. His servants would be the ones to bring him his slippers in the morning and to bring him his, his water and his food. Because they were so innocent and unassuming, he could confide in them and he could speak with them. And oftentimes, his slaves would become his most intimate friends. This is the relationship that Jesus is describing for us in verse 15. What a privilege to have such a relationship with the Lord. We as Christians are slaves who have become intimate friends with the King. There's an old gospel song that has the line in it, You're my friend and you are my brother, even though you are a king. I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. That is the relationship we have with him. The king of glory has come off his throne and has come into this world and he's befriended sinners. Oh, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. And this friendship manifests itself in that Christ reveals to us what the Father has revealed through him. It's a special love. Christ does not love us from a distance. He opens up to us. He shows us his heart. He communes with us. How near is he to you? So near to you that he dwells in you. Abraham is the only person in the Old Testament that is called the friend of God. In our consecutive reading of Old Testament scripture last Sunday, we read chapter 18 together. Genesis 18 and verse 17 The Bible says, shall I hide from Abraham what thing I am doing, seeing that he is my friend? What a privilege is ours, beloved. Creator as creation's friend. It's a special love. It's an intimate love. It's a love that that, that goes by first name basis, if you will. He knows us. I fear that so much of what is called love in the church today is just superficial niceties. Are we really loving each other after the example of our Lord's intimate, deep, and personal love? Sometimes we're afraid of genuine love because genuine love is relational. It's communicative. See, if I'm going to allow others to love me, that means I have to open up. I have to let the guard down. I have to to allow others to see my heart for what it really is, but I don't want to do that because if I allow you to see me for who I really am, then you might realize just how broken and messed up I really am. That puts me in a vulnerable position. But it's the only way that you're ever really going to love me because if you don't know who I am, the person you think you're loving is not me. So many times we love the personality we see on the platform, but we don't really know the man. We love the, the, the sister that we see in church with her Bible, but we really don't know anything about what's going on in her life, what's going on at home. We don't know what's going on in her family. How can we really love them if that's the case? Well, let me tell you something. Those of you like me who sometimes are apprehensive or have a fear of, of opening up in this way to allow yourself to be loved, There is not one thing that Jesus doesn't know about you. He sees every failure. He sees every sin. He sees every defect. He sees every blemish. He sees all of your insecurities. He knows all of your secrets. And no one loves you more than he does. Don't rob others of the joy of loving you. And don't rob yourself of the joy of loving others. But let us model what we see in our Lord, this this special love. I love the verse, 1 Peter chapter 4, where Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. You don't have to be afraid of those insecurities and 
all of those things that you think are so hideous about you that are unlovable because true Christian love, do you know what it does? It covers those things. It covers those things. Christians who love one another, they don't go on and on talking about each other's failures. They don't go on and on talking about what makes them better and someone else not as good. But we cover each other's insecurities. We cover, yes, even each other's sins. And we look past the failures and we look past the disappointments and we love the person that we see before us who is an image bearer of God and a joint heir with our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, this love in verses 16 and 17 is a sovereign love. Notice Jesus says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Interesting to find such a statement in a context of Christian love. What, what, what is Jesus saying here? Well, what Jesus is saying here is that the beauty of this love is that it was not us, but Christ who took the initiative. Before one slab of dirt was ever laid upon the face of the earth, before one star was ever hung in the heavens, Christ had already determined to love you. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are hard to understand. Uh, The doctrine of election is not really one of them. It, It might be hard to swallow, but it's not hard to understand. I mean, Jesus says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. That's pretty black and white. You say, well, brother, that's just talking about their appointment to the apostolic office. Well, it certainly is that, but it's not only that. What's the context of this passage? The context of this passage is the genuine nature of salvation. And Jesus is here talking about the love that he has for us and the love that we have for others. And he's saying that this is not a love that originated with you, but it originated with me. That's the point of the passage. And this is to model itself in our love for each other. Don't sit around waiting for someone to come along that adds a special value in your life before you love them. That's not the way God loves. It's not the way Jesus loves. We, we love first. I, 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 I find it sad when you hear of stories, thankfully you don't hear of it much here, and I'm thankful for that because God is so good to us in this regard, but when people will say, yeah, I went to that church and I was there for X amount of time and I just never felt loved. I never, no, one ever, no one ever reached out to me. And, and you know, sometimes that is the fault of a church that just doesn't understand what Christian love is and they don't take the initiative. Sometimes it's the fault of the one visiting who doesn't take the initiative. But, but here's what I believe Jesus is telling us by way of application is that when it comes to our love for one another, we are the ones that are to take the initiative mm-hmm. in loving each other. And we're not to only love to the extent that we feel that love return, but we're just to freely love. Just take the initiative. Just love. Just love your brother and sister. So what if they haven't spoken to you in four Sundays? So what if you've, you know, you've worn a new tie two weeks in a row and they didn't comment on how wonderful your tie looked? This isn't a new tie. This is a very old tie, by the way. (laughs) But so what? So what if they don't slap you on the back and say, great sermon preacher? Does that mean, well, I mean, that person... He's never said anything loving to me, so I don't have to love him. Is that what Jesus is saying? He's saying the exact opposite. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I loved you first. That's how we are to love one another. But he goes on and he says he loved us, he chose us, and he appointed us that we should go and bear fruit. That's what he chooses us for, and that's, that's what his love propels us to do. Not only did God ordain for you to go to heaven, but he ordained that you would live like you're going there while you're on your way. And that your fruit should remain. I mean, isn't this what we all desire? To live a life that leaves a mark long after we're gone for the glory of God? And and by the way, that's the only way to live a life that matters, is to live it for the glory of God. One day, all of the celebrities and big names of this world will mean absolutely nothing. When you stand before God on that day, the only thing that will matter is what He has to say about your life. 
And he's given us a book where he's told us exactly the rubric upon which we will be evaluated. You're not going to be asked about how quickly you responded to that Facebook comment because somebody was articulating something just a little different than what you thought was right. But you will be asked, how well did you love your brothers and sisters? When you stand before God, don't be one who has accomplished so much in the business world and achieved so many things in in ways of hobbies and in other pursuits, but has made little progress in the things of God. I, I don't know of a better sermon illustration to articulate this truth than the very famous illustration that John Piper gave when he first preached that sermon, Don't Waste Your Life. And Piper talked about a a news article of a couple that had retired and moved to Florida and they 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 were spending their days walking the beach and collecting seashells and the the news article was talking about what a wonderful thing this is and Piper famously says no that's a, a tragedy it's a tragedy That they're going to stand before God on the last day and they're going to say to Him, Look, Lord, my seashell collection. And of course, the the motivation there was that we ought not waste our life in things that really don't matter. We're not nuns and monks. We don't have to take a vow of of abject poverty and deny ourselves any good thing in this world. God does not want us to live like that. But he does want us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in that kingdom, the citizens of that kingdom are marked by a love for one another. And then again, he connects this idea of, of divine love and fruit that remains with prayer. He says at the end of verse 16, And whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We see that prayer is the means through which we bear fruit that remains. I think this gives us a lot of instruction on what we're to be praying about. When's the last time as a a people, as a church, as an individual, we've called out to God, Lord, let us bear fruit that remains. We oftentimes spend more time in prayer praying to keep saints out of heaven than we do praying to get sinners into heaven. We should pray for worldly needs and we should pray for job opportunities and we should pray for financial matters, but let us not neglect to pray for the things that are of the most importance. Lord, help me to love. Help me to be more loving. Help me to be more holy. Help me to do more things for your honor and glory. Help me to spend my life in things of eternal value. The last suit that you wear won't have any pockets. You're not going to take any of it with you when you go. So if we're going to bear fruit that remains, it must be heavenly fruit. It must be fruit under the glory of God. Fruit that comes through a life lived, loving Christ, loving His people. Well, I never really answered the question, why does Jesus reference this idea of being chosen in the context of Christian love. He does so because he knows that the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which his people rest their heads. And you remember the context of this discourse. Jesus is hours away from Calvary. He's he's hours away from his crucifixion. He has already told his disciples that he will soon die on the cross. He has already instituted his last supper. Judas has already been dismissed and is on his way right now to betray him. Peter is going to soon deny the Lord. All the other disciples, except for John, will be scared and will scatter and will run and will hide. And you say at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, everything looks so bleak. Is there any hope? Is this the end? Is this it? Yes, yes, brothers and sisters, there's hope because he's chosen us to bear fruits that remain. You look at your Christian life, you look at your church, and you think, is this it? Is this the end? 
do we have any hope? What, what is there to look forward to? What is there to, to rest in? Where do we find encouragement? We find encouragement in the words of our Lord that says, He's chosen us for this. He's chosen us to bear fruits that remain. Look, I don't know what tomorrow holds or what next week holds, but I know this. I know that I've been chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ to love you and to love this church and to serve God right here in Paris, Tennessee. And until he tells me otherwise, this is what I'm going to do. Because he's chosen me for that. Remember this verse in times of discouragement when quitting would be so easy. The Christian life is so hard to live at times. Remember that you are Christ's disciple, not because of some decision that you made, some choice that you made, but because he called you and he set his love upon you. And he chose you to bear fruits that remain. And he's called you to abide in him, to stay with him, to remain in him, to keep following after him, to keep obeying his command that you would love one another even as he has loved you for his glory, for his honor, for his service. And he's promised you a reward, not in this life, but in the life to come. And so we labor, not as those that have no hope, but as those who have the greatest hope of all, to know that it will be worth it all when we see Christ. The moment that you close your eyes in death and your soul passes from this life to the next, when you take one glimpse upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, every trial, every tribulation, every hardship, every tear, it will seem as nothing compared to the glory on that day. So you keep serving Him. You keep following after Him. You keep bearing the reproach that comes with following Christ and loving your brothers and sisters and you do it with joy because you know that you're going to see Him one day. When you see Him, that's what's going to matter. The love we had for one another, the worship we offered to Him, the communion we enjoyed in this life. And, and this is but a shadow. The church is but a shadow of the unbroken, eternal joy, communion, and fellowship that awaits us then. May God hold our hand at times. May He drag us there Himself when we can't go on our own. But He's going to get us there. And we're going to be there. I've said this to you before. You better look around and you better get comfortable because this is who you're going to spend eternity with. Let us love one another, even as Christ has loved us. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us in the Word of God, for the great promise of the Gospel for the hope that comes through knowing our Lord and Savior. We ask you by the power of the Spirit of God to help us to love you even as you have loved us, that we might do this for your honor and your glory's sake, not thinking of our own selves and what it might cost us, but thinking only of the the glory that we will bring to you as we love the way Jesus loved. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.